Section 10 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section 10. The view from Walter Levin's rooms grew, in a sense, more sordid as spring advanced. The windows of the poor, hermetically sealed in winter, opened as the cold moderated. Heads and mattresses, Milk bottles and green groceries peopled the window sills anew. Here and there, through larger openings, machinery and its servants were revealed to him. But he found his repayment in a lifted sky, remoter, bluer, and in a freer air, friendly, not yet grown brutal with heat. He had rented a third room across the hall to go with his own two, a cheerless little apartment that never held a tenant long. Of this he made his own bedroom, furnishing his former chamber for Cordelia Wheaton. When he learned from Jim Huntingdon's long cablegram that Miss Wheaton was really ill, he had gone about his feverish arrangements. He did not know in what shape he might find her, but he took it that he was to receive her from Huntingdon at San Francisco, and to bring her home to die of her slow heart affection. Without, he hoped, too much pain. Levin had told Mr. Reed on the very day of the abortive conference that Cordelia's support was to be his affair and his only. She might be given to understand what Mr. Reed liked, but not a penny should come to her from any of that crew. Of course, I should have given most of it myself, Reed had growled, but I wasn't going to tell them so. I know, I know, I should have been sure of it. "'But this is exclusively my affair,' Levin had replied quietly. The lawyer knew a resolve when he saw one, and he did not attempt to change Levin's mind. That was a mineral substance, not easily impressed. When Levin received Cordelia from Huntingdon's kind and patient hands, he saw how well he had guessed. It was plain that Cordelia must be accompanied through the remaining months— that her vagueness must find guiding hands on every side. The shred of her wealth that he possessed, though he had kept it intact like a relic, would not suffice to such a household as she would need if the guiding hands were to be mercenary ones, nor should the hands be those of the old sumptress Mrs. Williston had mentioned, irreverent with claws inset. Yes, he would take her to himself, he would bring her home with no flourish, with a quiet taking for granted of the situation which must convince. Luckily, he had time to learn in the few hours between Huntington's arrival and his return by another ship to the passionate and sacred continent, Miss Wheaton was aware of her own physical condition. An American doctor in Hong Kong had looked her over and reported explicitly he had only to provide for her comfort as relentlessly and uncommunicatively as a trained nurse. He had brought her then to his high-perched rooms, but not as a burden, as if rather the rooms had been merely waiting through her exile, as if the crowded objects had been heirlooms of her own. A little maidservant came in by day to wait on Cordelia and fetch and serve her food. It was like purveying for a crippled bird, a little water, a few grains of corn. Levin stuck to his dreary boarding-house, 
A nurse slept at night in the big sitting-room. And what of Cordelia Wheaton? Levin himself could not guess what lay beneath her quietness. Not once had she questioned, not once had she protested, and he hardly knew whether she had cynically grasped the situation, or whether she was too sunk in fatalism to wonder, or whether she merely had incomparably good manners. Whichever it was, it was clear that she trusted him, that she was willing, if not content, to let him be her go-between with the world. Did the gray hue of death strike inward to her very heart? He could not say. He drew her sometimes to talk of life in Benares, its strange mingling of conventual and private mysticism. But she was unready with detail, over-dainty, it seemed, for concreteness. Faint implications of a point of view were there, hints of hierarchies no Occidental could recognize, and yet of a democracy positively biologic, which ignored not only classes, but species. She did not preach, she only assumed and ever so faintly alluded. Snake and man, thus he had once summed up her blasphemy against civilization, yet how gracefully she avoided insulting his humanism, save with the deep crease of her smile. She was a very great lady in spite of all. Sometimes they drifted into reminiscence. Like a peddler, he would pull something out of the pack of their past and try to catch her eye with its glitter. But her effort was too painful. Chronology fretted her like a lie not to be borne. She had already pricked the fallacy of time. Soon she would have done with that of space. Her heart grew weaker as the spring came on, as if justifiably revolting against the burden of flesh it must vitalize. Levin gave sharp directions to the doctor to save her pain. He suspected too vividly what she thought of pain. Moreover, for him it was the arch-enemy. He wished her to float out on a stream of diffused consciousness, which should widen to unconsciousness at the last, as a river widens to the sea. He craved for her all possible amenities of dissolution. He did not even ask her to welcome the spring as it floated in through their wide-flung windows. He only hugged to himself the fitness of her dying in a gentler air. He conspired with nurse and physician for opiates cunningly spaced, that there should be no agonies, that she should slip from one oblivion of pain into the next. Cordelia sat in her great chair, pillowed and propped into the semblance of antediluvian bulk, an object so monstrous as to take his breath away when he entered after an absence, vast, shapeless, white, like a primeval foreshadowing of the human race to be. Yet her voice, when it came, was sweet, and her eyes kind as no other eyes had ever been. It was not the way he had dreamed of having Cordelia— in the days when he had dreamed, and his heart was not sapless, or his face like burnt-out slag. Not bronze, as Bessie John had said, since bronze has blood within. Yet Walter Levin was happier to have her thus than he could have been to have her any time those thirty years. He had forgotten now the long ache of empty hands. It had been vouchsafed him, before she died, to serve her, to appease a lifelong craving— long since grown formal, 
yet still there as a sense of incompleteness, of a step in the dance not taken. His relation to her was all piety and old convention, as empty of passion as the beautiful genuflections of an acolyte. Suddenly, one afternoon in mid-March, she spoke to him very shyly. You loved me, didn't you, Walter? I have always loved you. But not now, she asked anxiously. No, not now. And she closed her eyes, reassured. The little passage was not grotesque to Walter Levin, for he understood. It had been months now since anyone had been admitted to Cordelia, except the doctor and the nurses. Mr. Reed, Mrs. John, Mrs. Williston, Miss Bean, all of them had been turned away and now came no more. Cordelia asked no questions about her beneficiaries. It caressed some surviving vanity in Levin that the only human relation she should have referred to spontaneously was his to her. The others were lost in that mist of kindness which was settling each day a little more impenetrably upon her soul. For it was a mist through which the lamps shone even fainter and fewer. Morphine took care of that, since a point of light would now be a point of pain. April was a veiled month. The sun rode higher and more kindly, and Levin, as I have said, could see from his windows life returning to the world, but within the grayness deepened. The sound of that difficult breathing kept on through the days and nights, incessant, natural as a hidden watercourse close at hand. When Levin went forth into the streets, he missed it at the heart of the din. He was neither impatient nor sad. He would not have hastened or delayed Cordelia's death by the lifting of a secret finger. She must not suffer. Of that he would make sure but the thought of her passing brought no relief. He was consciously under no strain. What he had wanted had been vouchsafed him, and the months would not add to the gift. Nothing else ever in all his life could happen to him now. Yet when the doctor told him the next days would see the end, he bestirred himself a little from his peace. He must be there at hand every moment, lest in some last lucid instant she should wish to speak to him. He knew that the final unconsciousness would come before the heart stopped beating, and he drugged himself with coffee that he might not sleep at all. The doctor's advice to him he brushed aside as he would have rejected a spurious painting. He sat for hours, listening to the raucous familiar breathing, watching her closed eyelids. On this day of late April, the sun was driving a level band of light through the western windows. He motioned to the nurse not to draw the curtain. The light was not yet upon Miss Wheaton's face, and something in his tradition craved sunlight for her at the end. As he bent over her, never taking his eyes from her closed eyelids, his mind went strain a little. He thought of the beneficiaries— all those people to whom this woman here had given the key of the fields. He was glad they would not know the moment of her passing, that they were so utterly barred out from knowledge of her. Then it came to him with a slow, insistent rush of conviction 
that he himself was still in Cordelia's debt. Nothing he had done for her in this season of slow dying could equal the beauty of her complete abandoning of herself to his care. She had not troubled him with thanks, with questions, with deprecations. She had not even, oh, blessed abstention, stated her ease. She had taken him as simply as one takes God. She had been beautiful, that is, without intention. Because to the very core of her, no matter what grotesqueries of creed overlaid her spirit, as grotesqueries of flesh overlaid her pure heart, she trusted him. She was unconscious of charity, whether hers or his, thereby creating a charity that he could never match. Never. The sun placed its wide finger of light upon her eyes. They opened into what must have been, to her relaxed vision, a great golden mist. Some early irrelevant moment of her life resumed her in her weakness. Heaven? she murmured. Levin bent his face close to hers, passionately careful not to touch her or to intercept the sun. Nirvana, he murmured back with a lingering clearness. Nirvana. It was with no passion of sympathy, no blur of emotion, that he spoke. Levin had never been colder than when he grasped, ostensibly, the hoarded sum of his contempt and flung it down there in the sunlight to pay his debt. Nirvana, he repeated, deliberate, insistent as a mesmerist. The faintest smile, as if some little, some infinitesimal thing had been set straight, brushed across Cordelia's mouth. The sacrifice of his lips' integrity had not been made in vain. She had touched and remitted. Then her eyes closed again, and the nurse, at a gesture from him, drew down the shade. An hour later, in the twilight, the head dropped, and the breathing, long since almost inaudible, turned to silence. The nurse nodded, and Levin rose. End of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald.